What are some examples of non-financial conflicts of interest that might exist, and should these be put in a conflict of interest policy? Great question, and I think many organizations tend to just focus on the financial conflicts of interest. I mean, even the policy template that the IRS gives you for conflicts of interest is just really a matter of the financial conflict. So there is this whole other piece of this that is part of the conflicts of interest discussion that needs to be addressed. And so from a standpoint of non-financial conflicts of interest, so things that really have nothing to do with kind of receiving some benefit or uh, some financial benefit, right, from, from your affiliation with the organization, there are several things that could be like a non-financial conflict of interest. Like, for example, if you serve on two, let's say, and this oftentimes like comes in with like two separate, when you're on two separate boards, right? Or multiple boards. And we know that in some markets, that's very much how it works, right? Like you've got someone who you're like, oh, you're on like five boards and that's pretty common. And so the idea that from a donor and funding standpoint, it can get tricky. So if, for example, you're on the board of an organization and you find out about this new donor in town that could like that your organization's going to pursue. And then you're at, you know, a week later, your other board meeting for another nonprofit. And they are like, gosh, we need names. We need to know people who from like the board, right? Like who should we be pursuing? What are other organizations we should be looking at? I think you really have to check yourself on that, right? Because is that is that fair, particularly if it's more proprietary information and not public information? Is that something fair to share? I know, like that's that's kind of, a, it's a conflict because when you're wearing your hat for a particular organization, you are working in their best interest. You are acting in their best interest. And so you have to ask yourself, can I legitimately act in the best interest of this organization right now? Or do I need to? And if I can't, then then maybe I need to just like at least kind of disclose that I do serve on two separate boards or I am involved in two separate organizations in a way that could create this sort of non-financial conflict of interest. I'm going to try do my best to try to not let that happen and but but there's times it can happen, even think about like from a hiring, like two organizations, we see it all the time that are both hiring like development directors as an example, right? Because that position always seems like it needs to be filled. Okay, so like if you have a candidate that in mind, which one, which one are you like giving that to? And like, how do you make that decision? Um, things like you know, and the same with board members and board member recruitment can kind of follow that same track with the hiring piece. Uh, I also think I've seen it come up with um, public policy issues. So if your organization is is really advocating and maybe getting involved in legislative issues and sort of trying to influence some of those is something you're doing on behalf of is, is one organization, what they're doing, something that could jeopardize another organization and that you're serving on the board of, and how are you then upholding like the image kind of as your role as a board member, right? You're there to protect and sort of steward that public image. And so how are you, how are you doing that um, in a way that honors both organizations? And so I, the list just goes on and on because of it. And it's why I think people have to be really careful when they start to serve 
in an ex- in on multiple boards. It's not that you can't do that. You just have to be really aware of how how is this impacting the organization? Are they going to actually maybe be hurt because your conflict, you know, your your loyalty, it's it's like a conflict of loyalty. It's like this duality of loyalty is the way it's described in articles out there is is you want to be loyal to both, but how, sometimes how do you do that? And so I think you've got to be really careful about that. And you also perhaps then maybe the the rule of thumb is if I am going to serve on two different organizations, like maybe I try to get topics or like missions that are so separate from each other that there's less concern about that potential non-financial conflict of interest. Um, And, you know, again, like, I just think we all have to act. There's always going to be conflicts. It's not the end of the world, but it is about being honest, disclosing, and really trying to act in in the best interest of the organization, you know, that you're, that you're serving uh, and doing that in different, you know, figuring out what that looks like. So it's it's complicated. I think the non-financial piece, Andy, is way more complicated than the financial, like straightforward <laughs> one, right? Because the non-financial is where you really have to do like an ethical check. Like that's the part that makes it hard. Yeah, I, I think you're. I mean, I have absolutely nothing to add, but I'm going to talk anyway. I think the 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 reason the IRS like talks about financial stuff and their conflict of interest is because that's all they care about. Like the IRS is about getting as much tax money as they can and making sure you're not trying to cheat the tax system. They, they don't really care whether or not you're ethical. That's doesn't. It's not a. It's not the um, internal ethics service or anything like that. The I think the the word that you didn't use that I was shocked that you didn't use was fiduciary oh, because that's yeah. right. That's the the yeah. essence of fiduciary duty is everything that is in your non-financial conflict of interest policy. And I've not really ever seen, I don't know, have you ever seen a a conflict of interest policy that includes anything like that? That so, includes like, like yeah. talking about, okay. Yeah, so I what have, kind- and I, yeah, and I can try to see if I can find an example that I'm able to share with some of that language because, and you know, it, the reality is, Andy, I think most organizations don't have that language in that, right? Like it's just an outright financial conflict. And partly because- I don't think they want to really deal. I mean, they just don't want to deal with this other part that's a really messy part of it. Um, And yet, think about it. Like, I don't know about you, Andy, but how many times have you heard an organization where you're like, well, I don't know, this board member serves on that board and they, they did this for that organization. Like, it comes up. So, like, I feel like in some ways it needs to be it needs to be addressed because it comes up in other weird kind of like passive aggressive ways if you don't deal with it up front. So there is some language. It's very rare that I see organizations doing doing it, but like I've seen some good samples that absolutely. And I, so I'm an advocate for it, like at least drawing attention to it. Yeah. And I, and I think that's that's sort of the the root is making sure that people are honest with it, having having straightforward conversations. Like if you're on two different boards and you're both hiring for the same position, just say like, look, I'm on this other board. I mean, and that's what, that's how you deal with other conflict of interest, conflicts of interest as well, is you just, you acknowledge it out loud. And once you've done that, then people are like, okay, now I can decide whether or not to discount your opinion because you've told me about this conflict of interest you had. And you just document that and you move on. So I think as long as you can have something about 
what fiduciary duty means. And I think, I don't know, I'd say, I, we should take a poll, but I think I'd probably maybe 25% of board members can accurately define fiduciary. I think the other 75% get confused because it starts with an F and they think it has something to do with finances. They think <laughs> fiduciary means like financial even though it doesn't, it means yeah. like fiduciary is the word, the same word as FIDO, right? Which right. means loyalty. Right. So it's the loyalty to the organization that while you're in that room, while you're acting on that organization with that organization, you have to pretend like everything you do is on that organization's behalf. When you walk out of the room, you no longer have fiduciary duty to that organization, right? You're just in your, nobody's going to, nobody's going to say you're in breach of your fiduciary duty if you vote for some dummy <laughs> who wants to tear it all down, right? Yeah, or whatever, yeah. right? That's not, you can still do that. It doesn't make, uh, doesn't make you a good person, I guess, but, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean you're breaching your fiduciary duty, but that's, that's kind of where it feels like the, the policy I would love to see. Yeah. I would love to see that policy that talks about what fiduciary duty means. And, and is there a conflict of your fiduciary duty policy? What that looks like. I would love to see that. Well, guess what? I'm going to give you some reading then, my friend. So. Perfect. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where hosts Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. We are so glad to have you here today with us. And I am super jazzed and excited to have a special guest expert joining us, Barbara O'Reilly. Barbara is the founder and principal of Windmill Hill Consulting, and uh, she's going to tackle a, a question or two for us today. So, Barbara, welcome. Oh, thanks, Stacy. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Thank Can you, you share a little me. bit of background about yourself with our audience? Of course. Uh, so I'm a career fundraiser. I've been uh, fundraising uh, in and with nonprofits for the last 30 years. And uh, my consultancy now, Windmill Hill Consulting, works with nonprofits to give them the tools, the resources, and the confidence that they need to raise more money. Money. We all want more of it, don't we? And nonprofits, uh, I'm sure they're going, oh my gosh, we need your contact info, Barbara. We need to figure out how to raise more money. So we will make sure for our listeners to uh, put Barbara's contact info uh, in the show notes. And you are welcome to reach out um, if you want to explore uh, a further partnership with Barbara. But in the meantime, we will dive right in to our first question. And here it goes, folks. Are you holding on to your seats? All right. So we're working around the clock to put the finishing touches on our year-end fundraising appeal. Then my executive director asked me how we ask for specific things while transparently keeping the money in an undesignated fund. She doesn't want restricted funds for a, a particular program or budget line item. Do you have any thoughts on how to accomplish this? Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> Help. <laughs> Not the first time I've heard a question in in this uh, this line of thought. So what um, one of the things that donors want is to know that there's 
the donors want a few things, but one of them that they want is to know that their gift is doing something, is having a, they, they can feel a tangibility to it. And so often when we are talking about making an unrestricted gift, uh, when we're asking donors to make an unrestricted gift, we, we in our minds as nonprofit leaders know all the things that that unrestricted uh, fund will do to support operating expenses, programmatic expenses, and so forth. But for the donor, they don't always see that. And so um, I, I can see it in this example as also the executive director wanting to have a little bit more of that um, that specificity, that tangibility to how that those donor gifts will be used. And it, uh, uh, whether it's a year-end appeal or any appeal throughout the year, being able to give donors that correlation between how their gift will be invested and what the results that gift will, will help that organization achieve. So things like a dollar handle, what we call a dollar handle, which is, you know, $50 will feed, you know, five families uh, over the next month as, as one example. You, we see it all the time in appeals. Um, that may not necessarily mean that that $50 specifically that that donor is going to make will do that, but it gives um, a, a greater sense of how donor dollars are put to work. So I would say that without, without being too restrictive in the language, illustrate through stories, through um, examples like what I just shared as a way to show the donors, the readers, how the how how their gifts are going to be put to use um and so you can give some examples every fundraiser and nonprofit leader knows them they have a kind of a ballpark of how much does it cost to do x y or z so you can you you can use those as illustrations and be sure you're really clear in the language to say you know uh you know fifty dollars can feed this family for the next month or, you know, or um, or other programs like this. Keep it broad enough in in how you're communicating to your donors, so that they don't um, feel like you're now creating all of these restricted funds. I love I love that advice, and I guess I'm also wondering. And this may be getting too much into accounting or auditing land, but I'm thinking about this also from the perspective of. The auditor comes in, they want to make sure, right, the money that has been earmarked or restricted is spent in the manner that it was mm -hmm. restricted. Um, do you happen to know how much, what that threshold is in general? Obviously, we're not tying you to this. Some auditors are stricter than others. But in general, how you get away from, so if you use an example like you used, $50 will do it helps do things like XYZ and also support other programs like mm -hmm. it. Like, is that language general enough in your experience to meet that threshold that then when that $50 is received, it could truly be put to unrestricted use if it needs to? Yeah, so I'm no auditor or a tax um, or right. nonprofit financial expert, uh, but it, it it is um yes i think the short answer is yes in my experience as long as the donor has designated it as unrestricted 
it gets put into the operating uh, budget, into the unrestricted budget, uh, and then used as the organization leaders see fit. Uh, if it's if a donor specifies, if you if the nonprofit says these are the funds that you can designate your gift to, and the donor specifies their fifty dollars, hundred dollars, thousand dollars, or whatever amount to those particular funds, then it is on the it's the obligation of the nonprofit leadership to be sure. That those funds are um, that they're honoring donor intent, and that those funds are spent in the way that they have articulated uh, at the beginning. That 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 those funds or restricted programs will be used. So um, I don't know how it would actually translate on the auditing side, but from a donor relation side, um, it's as simple as being clear and you know offering an unrestricted option, uh, and then giving the donors that those illustrations of how unrestricted funds are so important for results for programs how it will be put to use um, short of then creating restricted funds for everything that they need to do that becomes too too unwieldy and not helpful in the long run so uh, from for a donor communications perspective being able to illustrate for donors that just helps them to then say okay i will give to this, I will make an unrestricted gift and trust that the organization is going to do with it whatever they best need to be able to have the impact that they're envisioning. Have you seen any language? Uh, unrestricted sounds so formal and jargony, right? Yeah. Have you seen any language in appeals um, that is, a, I'm just going to call it a sexier way <laughs> to talk about unrestricted dollars? I know. Well, and and you're it's you've got a great point. I mean, un unrestricted, it has this feeling of like, you know, there are no bounds to how <laughs> the money is going to be spent. Um, and it, and for many donors, uh, we we have often seen a backlash, a silent backlash, but we have seen donors wanting to put uh, to, to restrict their gifts wherever they can find an opportunity to put it to a designated fund on the donation page you know, in, in solicitation materials and so forth for that very reason, because it feels like it's a big black hole uh, that their gift may or may not be put to use and they really want it to have the impact for that they envision as donors. So what I have sometimes seen is um, on a pledge form uh, or on a donation page, something along the lines of um, where it's needed most. Uh, yeah. And that's just, a that's sort of an, another nicer way of saying, I'm going to trust that the organizational leadership know how to best use this fund. Yeah, I love that. And it it sounds more, I think we all as a, you know, as a sector, I know I sometimes get caught in this too, just working with so many nonprofits mm -hmm. that we all start to use our own language and things that are more accounting related language that doesn't always connect with the donor and mm -hmm. feel warm and feel inviting and welcoming. And so one of the things I love about what you're suggesting is, is perhaps there is room for, right? Maybe you have your categories that are a little more designated, but mm -hmm. you also have the, hey, you could also give where where it's needed most and based on the, our, the highest priorities and needs that we're seeing. I mean, I, as a donor would go, if I trust you, right? There's the trust factor, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> If I trust that you have a pulse on what's going on, 
who am I to then earmark it? I instead I'm going to say, why, why not? Why not put it? You put it where it makes the most sense. So yes, exactly. Who am I? Those are my, those are the exact words I was thinking as you were saying them, because as, as donors, we don't have the programmatic expertise necessarily. So uh, who am I to, to say, I want my, you know, $100, $50, whatever the amount is to be used in this particular way, when in fact, that might not be the best use of those funds for that for that organization in this moment. Um, another interesting example um, to illustrate this point of how you, how you give these dollar handles is uh, every year, I think around this time, in fact, Heifer International has a little um, catalog that they send out that um, is a, just a nice way for donors to look and say, oh, I want to I want to grant a family in Zimbabwe with five cows and it's going to cost X. Uh, it doesn't actually mean that my don't my gift of whatever amount is going to send five cows to that particular family in Zimbabwe. But again, it correlates. It gives a very different visual and it, it, their catalog is fantastic because it gives all different price points all different ways that illustrate the varying um, dimensions of their their global work, their global uh, development work. So that is just one other way of, of showcasing uh, how those dollars are going to be put to use. I love that. We will have to find a link and put that in the show notes as well, because uh, I, I know that all my nonprofit friends out there say, show us examples, right? We want to beg, borrow, and steal from others. And that's what the industry is about, sharing and learning from each other. So, Yeah. And one other point I would say to your um, comment about the word unrestricted, and I would encourage organizations to not necessarily feel they have to use that word in their solicitations, because if they're, if they're writing those, um, the print and the electronic copy around a particular uh, invitation for a donor to make a gift. They're going to tell a story. They're going to get the the donor hooked on how much their gifts in the past have made a difference, how much more their gifts can do for that nonprofit's vision. So just keeping it a broader ask without using that word unrestricted is totally fine because if the donor is reading that letter and seeing a great story, seeing some you know reflections on what's going to happen in the future because of donors like them, the, the unrestricted is almost assumed. Uh, and so it's totally fine to leave it broad and say, would you consider investing back in again in us again because we're going to do X, Y, and Z? That's absolutely fine. It doesn't have to be so prescriptive in using that, but certainly in printed copy, like on a on a pledge form or on uh, or on a donation page, having it as a you know where my where it's needed most is an, is a nicer way of saying unrestricted. I love that. This is sage advice and stuff that <laughs> I hope everybody can put into use as as they're looking at appeals throughout the year. It doesn't have to just be end of year. We always talk about end of year appeals because we know that traditionally it's the largest giving season and the last few days, you probably know these stats better than I do, Barbara, right? But it's the last few days of the year. Yeah. Um, but but throughout the year, there's opportunities uh, to, to do this, to communicate like this and to take some of these these tips and and apply them in a way that gives you some more flexibility, which is what I think nonprofits are mm -hmm. desperately in need of, uh, and and also helps 
build that donor relationship in a way that's that's meaningful, fruitful, and sustainable. Yeah, you know, Penelope Burke, um, in her research um, around donor-centered fundraising and donor-centered leadership, one of the things that she found, this was interviewing tens of thousands of donors, uh, probably even hundreds of thousands of donors over the course of 20, 25 years. She found that, you know, donors want prompt and meaningful gift acknowledgement, and they want uh, they want a designation of their gift um, beyond the sort of the, the broader organizational mission. And I have always interpreted that as donors will, they, they will take advice generally. They will, they will lean on the expertise of the leadership to put those dollars to best use if they understand how it's going to be used. And I think that over the the last few years, we were definitely seeing or donors restricting, like literally restricting their gifts, putting it to designated funds that they could find on a donation page, on a pledge form, and so forth, because they weren't they weren't being communicated back how gifts generally were being put to use to help with results in greater impact and all the things that the organization was set up to achieve. So this comes back to that cycle of regularly communicating with our donors about the stories of success, the stories of uh, opportunities for growth, the way that philanthropy has helped propel those missions and visions. If we keep a regular cycle of that, then donors can feel satisfied that their gift was the right gift to make to that organization uh, and that their gift is being put to use. And they'll feel happy about that. It's when we see donors you know, wondering, did you get my gift? Uh, did it, did it help? Do you need another gift? Like when they start asking those questions, it means that they're not hearing from the organization in a way that's meaningful to them. So my, my advice for um, organizations and for fundraisers is to keep those open lines of communication throughout the year, certainly not just at the end of the year, because donors will continue to give if you ask over a period of time. You are just a a world of information and knowledge and tips and all of this. I feel like I could talk to you for hours on each one of these even micro, these, these micro topics within the larger topic, right, Barbara? I know. <laughs> Thanks, Stacey. Likewise. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's just, uh, it's been a treat having you here with us today. Again, uh, to our listeners, we are going to have some of the links that were noted uh, including Penelope Burke and donor-centered fundraising. We'll make sure to include those, Barbara's contact info and uh, all of that in the show notes. And Barbara, a huge, huge thank you to you for, for being here with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure, Stacey. It's always a treat to talk to you. So... So earlier today, I saw on the calendar that I had, we're doing a podcast taping. And I, for some reason, I wasn't feeling it. I was just like, I don't know if I feel like this today. <laughs> it was just like, this, oh, it's kind of overcast outside. Yeah. Um, I just didn't, didn't want, but then I get on the phone with Stacy and we start doing this and it's like, it's so much fun. <laughs> like, I really enjoy it. I'm glad I did. And I feel so much better now that I've done this. So I hope, I hope some of that rubs off on anybody else that's listening is that this maybe has made your day a little bit better because it certainly made my day better. Uh, I, thank you, Stacey. I appreciate that. Uh, well, thank you. And I, I'm glad you're being real here because I feel that way 
many a time when we're doing this. It's, it's, it's just sort of that like, oh my gosh, this is a couple hours of our day. Like it's, yeah. it's a big commitment, right? And so <laughs> and it can feel a little bit like, oh, there's a million other things I could be doing. And then, yeah. right, at the end of it, I go, I just feel a little brighter. I'm glad like, I did a that. A little just like, yeah. So, so kudos, yeah. like, hey, we're doing something right then, as long as you yeah. and I aren't like hating every minute of it. Although, <laughs> and, you know, I think because we're still getting questions, other people yep. must be enjoying something. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so thank you for sending in questions that allows Stacy and I to, to chat with each other. We really appreciate that. <laughs> so keep sending us questions so Stacy and I can talk. <laughs> 